This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for January 18th. Israel says it rejects the idea of a post-war Palestinian state. Will this dig even deeper divisions between Israel and its closest allies? We'll speak to Israel's ambassador to Canada, and the chief representative of the Palestinian delegation to Canada also reacts. Plus, Quebec nears a breaking point. It's asking the feds to slow the number of asylum seekers entering the province. The power panel debates how the government should respond. We begin with the ongoing war between Israel and Hamas. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says he opposes the establishment of a Palestinian state as any part of a post-war scenario. That position highlights the deep divisions between the United States and Israel, as U.S. President Joe Biden insists the Israel-Hamas conflict won't ultimately end until there is a two-state solution. Meanwhile, confusion abounds about Canada's official position on the allegations of genocide being made against the Israeli government. South Africa is bringing the charges against Israel at the International Court of Justice. Ido Moed is Israel's ambassador to Canada. Ambassador, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, we got a few things to get through, but I, I want to start on Canada's position on the case South Africa has brought to the International Court of Justice. As I understand the government's position, they support the court, but are taking a neutral stance on the allegations brought forward by South Africa. Is that your understanding of where Canada's position is? Yes, the government is not committed. How it will respond to the South Africa to the case to the way the ruling will be by the ICJ. True. Uh, you, you issued a statement saying you urged Canada to leave no room for misinterpretation on a matter that is crystal clear. Yeah. What would you like to hear from the government of Canada here? The same response that we heard from other G7 countries, which are very, very clear. Uh, let me just read out to you uh, what the French Minister of Foreign Affairs just said. To accuse a Jewish state of genocide is to cross a moral threshold, for example. But there were others that find, found other ways to describe the accusation made by South Africa. So the issue is not the court itself. Israel respects the court. Israel is there to defend itself. The point is really that there is an accusation that, that has no merit, that has no base. And I think that from our perspective, the point is really to say accusing a Jewish state of genocide is completely, that, that's completely and baseless uh, accusation that, that needs to be regarded as such. And I don't think the government of Canada ever did that in the past. There is, of course, I'm not uh, accusing Israel of genocide, but it needs to be stated clearly. Have you spoken with the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Melanie Jolie, or senior officials in the Canadian government about this particular issue? And if so, how did those conversations go? Well, I won't relate to our internal discussions. We have very good uh, discussions with the Canadian government on all levels, all the time. And so we have also conveyed that message. But at this point in time, I thought it was important also to come out in public and to make sure that this is where we stand, this is what we expect from Canada. Do you understand why Canada has taken this position? If you look at the protests we're seeing in some of the parts of, of Canada, if they come out and say it's not a genocide, they potentially enrage uh, a segment of the population. If they come out and say it is a genocide, as others have urged them to do, they put Jewish Canadians very much at risk and, and, and put pressure on Israel. Do you understand this position of neutrality in any way, or is it completely unacceptable to Israel? No, I, I understand the position very well, but uh, the point is really that at this time it's important to stand firm against such accusations that South Africa is making, accusing Israel, Israel of genocide when we are fighting to defend ourselves against a genocidal terrorist organization that has repeatedly said that they will do it again and again 
this is that's an atrocity, and I think that the world should speak against that. And this is why we are saying what you're saying right now. So, uh, did Canada give you any indication, just as a final point on this, that they might change their position, or uh, you know, it, it seems to me that this is where they are prepared to, to live and die until the court renders a verdict. Well, uh, again, I'm not going to refer to our internal discussions. We have very good channels of communication. We talk about everything all the time. So. Okay. I, I want to ask you about something that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said in public today. Uh, he, he told the world that he opposes a Palestinian state in any post-war scenario. Uh, this has raised a lot of eyebrows. The U.S. has said that they disagree with Prime Minister Netanyahu on this position. Does this mean no, no two-state solution ever, as long as Benjamin Netanyahu is Prime Minister? I think that what we should understand is that Israel is focused right now and re, uh, on restoring security for the Israeli population and to making sure that Hamas ceases to exist, ceases to threaten the Israeli population, and we actually focusing on liberating the Gaza Strip from Hamas. This is our main goal right now. For the future, we'll look what will happen in the future. We'll ha there's a long way ahead of us. We know that in the north we have the Hezbollah, that is threatening uh, Israel, that has been uh, continuously um, shooting at innocent Israelis and killing Israelis. And they are on the sidelines on this. And we actually look at Iran that is behind this whole developing story here of uh, war, waging war against Israel with the aim to eliminate the state of Israel. So our focus right now is on our defense and, and securing the future of Israel. We'll see how we find a way to uh, continue this uh, situation when this war subsides, when we find a way to make, once we know that our security is guaranteed, then we'll look forward. Uh, but you, you, have to win, you want to win the war, but you also have to win the peace, right? And these things need to be done in parallel. And, and I, I guess, is it, if it, is it as long as Benjamin Netanyahu is prime minister, there will be no Palestinian state? Because he said today they need to have some sort of a security arrangement from the River Jordan to all the lands west. And, and he said, how does that align with sovereignty in terms of uh, Palestine, having a sovereign Palestine in that area? We, we have a very strange reality. Uh, that has changed on the 7th of October before un and up until that time things look very different so we had uh, the Gaza Strip we had a sort of a ceasefire there that was broken by Hamas when they uh, initiated a terrorist attack we have a Palestinian Authority that in in many ways the force does not condemn the Hamas but maybe even is supportive of some of the we don't know where we stand with the Palestinian Authority at its current state so talking about the two-state solution is something that is not tangible at the moment. And therefore, we, th there is no reason to, to rediscuss it when we know that we, at the current state, there is, there is no way to discuss it. But the Prime Minister's words, as I understood them, because it's true translation, so I, I will confess I'm not a Hebrew speaker, uh, but he's not talking about for the moment. He talks about in any post-war scenario. I mean, this is the, p the position of the United States, Canada, a lot of the NATO allies you refer to who are backing Israel in the ICJ process also back a two-state solution. So, so how, can, how can this conflict end with, with, with the prime minister of the day emphatically ruling out what people see as the best path to peace? We, we have to understand what we are talking about when we are talking about a two-state solution. I don't think that anybody has any idea what it entails when we are talking about it right now, when we are fighting this war against Hamas. So talking about an idea from the past, when we know that the future is completely different, the environment is going to change in a very profound, profound way, doesn't really make sense. And this is what Prime Minister is saying. 
So we have a future in the region together with our neighbors. We know that and we will find a way to create a safer solution for all of us. The first step would definitely be getting rid of Hamas from the Gaza Strip and liberating the Gaza Strip from Hamas because they are the ones that really block it. They are the ones that are out there to kill Israelis and to basically eradicate the state of Israel together with Iran, with Hezbollah and so on. So we have to make sure that that doesn't happen. If you're talking about a two-state solution, we have to guarantee that our state is there when we are talking about any kind of a solution. And at the moment, we are under threat. So we are at war, and we have to win that war. And once we win that war, we'll see. We'll see, though, is a difficult message to take to the international community, is it not? I mean, you saw what happened with the vote in the United Nations, and while people are lining up with your country, some of the G7 allies at the ICJ, even the British foreign minister is worried about, suggested that he has concerns that maybe Israel has violated international law in the way it's conducted the war. So there is some growing concern on how this war is going. And now the, this, the, the comments from Prime Minister Netanyahu today are you worried this will shake the strength of your allies, the support of your allies, if, if the prime minister is ruling out what they hold as, 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 as the, the peace solution here? So let me be clear on this. All our allies, including Canada, stand very strongly by Israel, continue to support Israel's right to exist, Israel's yes. right to defend itself, condemn Hamas on the strongest possible terms, call for the return of the hostages. And, uh, by the way, just on this occasion, let me remind all of us that today is the first birthday of Fir Bibas, a little boy, one-year-old baby that is also held captive among with 135 other hostages in Gaza. Um, when we are talking about, when I'm saying we'll see, we have to understand that we are in a very complex war. It is very difficult to predict from now what will be the status two days from here or two months from here or two years from now. So let us not try to impose any kind of an idea that is based on a reality that doesn't exist anymore. Let us think in another way. I don't think that the Palestinians will go, that it's not our intention to, you know, to, to chase any of our neighbors away. We will live together in this region. We know that and we respect that. Moreover, it is very important for us while fighting this war to make sure that the humanitarian assistance that the Palestinians need to have will continue to get into the Gaza Strip. It's extremely important for us to find ways to minimize the losses of lives because they are our neighbors. So the issue of coexistence is not the same as a two-state solution. We will find a way to live together in the future in a respectable way. But at the moment, it's not the right time to talk about that. And I think that the two-state solution is a concept that is not realistic anymore. Okay, but just as a in final... That, in, in that context. But just as a final point on this, coexistence, it sounds like, based on what the Prime Minister said and other ministers in his government, and certainly in the War Cabinet and, and, and the coalition, you find a way to coexist, but that sounds like on Israel's terms, without necessarily autonomy and self-determination for the Palestinian people who are not part of Hamas and, and want to have their own land in this particular region. That, that's how many people could interpret this. I mean, the only term that we will need to assure and guarantee is security. For our, from our perspective, it's less relevant what kind of an entity will be there as long as it respects Israel's right to exist and will uphold its, its uh, responsibility and, and commitment to security. This is what we need. This is what every country around the world wishes to have, that its neighbors will not attack it. 
And this is what this, these are the only terms that we've been discussing when we've been negotiating with Arab countries in the past, and that's the same will be in the future. Ido Moed, Israel's ambassador to Canada. Thanks again for your time. Thank you. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was asked last hour about the Israeli Prime Minister's opposition to a Palestinian state. Trudeau said he wasn't surprised and actually discussed this issue with Benjamin Netanyahu a few weeks ago. Canada's position is crystal clear. We believe the only way forward for the region, indeed the only way forward for a safe and secure Israel, is to have a Palestinian state that is also safe and secure with internationally recognized borders. Okay, we spoke to the Israeli ambassador before those comments, and we also spoke to the Palestinian representative in Canada before Trudeau spoke to get her perspective. Mona Abu Amara is the chief representative of the Palestinian delegation to Canada. Mona Abu Amara, welcome back to the show. Thank you, David. Israel's prime minister today, Benjamin Netanyahu, announced that he opposed a Palestinian state in any post-war scenario. What's your reaction to that announcement? The thing that caught uh, my eye mostly was uh, the from the river to the sea use. So uh, that's the Prime Minister of Israel, um, the Prime Minister of an occupying power, saying that. And uh, that's something that we have been saying for a long, long time. Um, in the course of these three months, um, Prime Minister Netanyahu have said everything that Western uh, democracies uh, refuse to believe and blame the Palestinians, uh, the Palestinian leadership and uh, the state of Palestine in general for um, not achieving the, the peace uh, um, initiative, not, not fulfilling it to, to in due right. course. Uh, but uh, Netanyahu came out and said that uh, he was the reason the Oslo Accord uh, failed. And now he's saying that he would not allow for any of that uh, to happen. We will not abide. We, we, we are not going to be um, oppressed and occupied forever. So that's not uh, something that we would be agreeing with or uh, appeasing. The international community now more than ever has the um, responsibility to implement the uh, international legitimacy that we agreed on. Okay, so th that's where I wanted to go next. But just on, on your river to the sea, uh, what Prime Minister Netanyahu said today was that Israel needs a security arrangement of some sort from the Jordan to the west, and that okay. would be the totality of the area, right? That, that, that's, uh, that's no, all. it's that they will be occupying the whole. Okay. All right, but, but you say it's time now for the international community. I mean, yes. Canada has supported a two-state solution, uh, you know, as, as the way to peace and stability in that region. The United States said today they disagree with Israel. What do you want Canada to do, and what do you want to see the international community do? Okay, first of all, the international community has failed the Palestinians uh, uh, for decades now. When when you come and see what's happening in Gaza, it's uh, it did not come. Uh, in a vacuum. It happened because impunity have been so stark for Israel that nothing it would do to the Palestinian people would make, uh, would have any uh, consequences. It would never be held accountable. And that brings us to uh, this horrific uh, uh, situation that we are facing in Gaza, a total genocide. So uh, what we want we want the implementation of international law. We want for Palestine not to be the exception anymore. We want Israel to be held accountable. And yes, Israel should be held accountable in all forums that 
the international community in Canada believes in. So why is it that any time anything comes to Israel, then every, all laws change and, and we need to be neutral to an occupier. Canada and uh, the West in general is not identifying Israel plainly as an occupier anymore. We don't hear the word occupation. Apartheid is there. South Africa said it's there. Uh, the, all the international um, uh, organizations, the human rights organizations, said it's time for the international community to actually stand how do you do? How, how do you do that, though? Uh, I mean, because Israel right now, there, there is this active military campaign happening in Gaza. You mm -hmm. know, as they say, they're seeking to eradicate Hamas, and I know the civilian death toll has been enormous in the middle of that. But their focus, the ambassador said this, is on security, and after that, we'll see. Was the phrase he used in terms of figuring out the coexistence arrangement, to use his word. So how does the international community go into a state like Israel and impose a solution that sat would satisfy that? You don't allow the oppressor, the occupier, to decide if the occupied and the oppressed get to have their own state. You recognize that state. You are saying there's a two-state solution, and now the other, you recognize the party that is doing the oppression, that is committing the genocide, that is uh, being... Uh, now, fortunately, uh, starting to be held accountable in 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 the in front of the highest court, um, so so just implement what you have been preaching: the values, the principles, the resolutions. We need to actually uh, call out Israel as an occupying power. We need to call out not just by words but by action to. End its occupation to end its settlement to to the stop the settlements building to stop moving settlers to stop the terrorism that the settlers are doing. We have been hearing a lot of words, but when it comes to other issues, we have seen uh, action on the ground. We haven't seen you asking people other. Um, people and I, I don't want to make comparisons anymore because what's happening in Gaza and in Palestine hasn't happened uh, in other places but we have seen what the international community and especially Canada can do when it decides to do on the issue of the allegations of genocide brought against Israel you use that word a couple of times in this conversation South Africa has accused uh, Israel of committing genocide at the International Court of Justice. Canada is bucking with, uh, breaking with a, a lot of its G7 allies and, and staying neutral on this position, saying they have respect for the ICJ. They don't necessarily support the case, but they haven't rejected the case either. What do you make of this neutral position that Canada is trying to carve out here? So uh, before the statements came, uh, I heard the, uh, uh, the press conference that Prime Minister Trudeau had and um, there was a lot of confusion, but I've, I've mm -hmm. heard everywhere. But uh, I understood, um, and, and for Palestine, we understood that this is a neutral position. I had meetings right after uh, that, and uh, of course, Palestinians would love to see Canada stand by South Africa uh, in its case because it's a case for justice and accountability uh, and an end to and prevention of further uh, genocide. But we also, the second best choice is for Canada not to um, in, inflict a negative uh, position on this uh, situation or stand by um, uh, Israel, like Germany, for instance. Because um, at the end of the day, 
you don't want to see this double standard be so stark. We, we've seen Canada uh, opposing a lot of um, issues when it comes to Palestinians using the right in, in international forums. And we hope that uh, at this point we will not see anything like this if we don't actually see a positive um, stand from Canada. Uh, it is still unclear to me if Canada would abide by a decision of the ICJ. I mean, some of the conversations I've had with people in the government suggest that they, they may reserve the right to disagree with it. Uh, I don't know yet. There is a vagueness to this that isn't there with the United States, the United Kingdom, France, and Germany. France initially seemed to take the neutral path but have come out and, and, against the allegations of genocide. If Canada had taken a side, um, what do you think the impact of that would have been domestically? because we're seeing so much tension in the country. If the government had taken an official position on this, what, what impact might that have had? First of all, internationally, uh, like on the international sphere, that would affect Canada's credibility a lot because you can't choose what international laws do whenever you want. It's in your interest because then that's not universality and, and you can't every single time um, decide what you like and don't like and then have that uh, be implemented and have exceptions because if you have an exception to the rules-based order, it's not... A rules-based order. On on the um, domestic level, of course, that would be affecting a lot of people because Canada is a place uh, that welcomed a lot of uh, immigrants from different places, and uh, the Palestinian cause is a cause. It is a cause for justice for everyone and values and principle, but it's also a cause that's very close to the hearts of uh, communities, the Palestinian mainly, and then we have the Muslim and the Arab, and and. A lot of friends uh, from uh, all over uh, other communities as well. So yeah, I, I can see it uh, having an effect uh, in Canada as well as uh, on its international credibility. Just as a, as a final uh, question, just to sort of, I want to go back to kind of where we started with this and what the Prime Minister Netanyahu said about no to no Palestinian state in a post-war Gaza. When you look at that and you look at what is happening inside Gaza. We're, what do you think happens next in this conflict? What does that tell you about where this conflict is and, and how soon maybe the military campaign could potentially end if they see no viable path to a Palestinian state from their perspective? So the sooner the international community starts uh, identifying this as a struggle, uh, another conflict, it's not a war on Hamas, it's a war on the whole of Palestine. It has been going on for more than 75 years. And, and that needs to be treated, the root causes, not to give more excuses of self-defense or Article 51 that has, by the way, been uh, proven uh, inappropriate to be used in such cases because it's not a state against state and, and uh, uh, Israel controls the territory that it claims it's, uh, um, it, it, it has self-defense against, which, mm -hmm. which is not appropriate in international law, not to mention that even those who are, um, there is an investigation plus uh, 972 magazine has done and CNN has uh, published it about the indiscriminate use and the mass killing that is happening from the uh, perspectives of uh, military, uh, the people who are st now in the military uh, and, and uh, those who have been and how this uh, issue has been treated and how Palestinians are being murdered for the sake 
of being murdered um, just to make enough destruction to have a problem in, in, in the place and go to the uh, imminent goal of uh, ethnic cleansing and uh, forcible displa displacement. Palestinians will stay on their land and we are hoping that um, Canada and we have seen Canada wanting to play uh, a better role and it's now or we are getting to a place where a slippery slope would be uh, imminent. Chief Representative Mona Abu Amaro of the Palestinian Delegation to Canada, thank you for your time today. Thank you, David. Quebec Premier Francois Legault is urging the Prime Minister to slow the influx of asylum seekers entering his province. Unfortunately, we are very close to the breaking point due to the excessive number of asylum seekers arriving in Quebec month after month. The situation has become unbearable, the Premier says. Legault also wants Ottawa to reimburse the Quebec government for money spent supporting those already arrived. That total? $470 million for 2021 and 2022. Well, the mayor of Canada's biggest city is sympathetic to Legault's requests. I understand the breaking point <laughs> piece because uh, we are doing our best. We are doing what we can under this financial strain. But do we want to close the doors to refugees? No, because I, I believe this is a city, a country that are built by newcomers. All right, we're going to bring in the power panel on this. Jonathan Kalis is a former Quebec advisor to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, now senior director at Macmillan Vantage. James Moore is a senior advisor at Denton's and a former conservative cabinet minister. Andrew Thompson is a former Saskatchewan NDP cabinet minister, now chief of government relations at the University of Toronto. And Shachi Curl is the president of the Angus Reid Institute. Happy Thursday, gang. Um, Jonathan, uh, let, let's start with you as you are in Quebec, where the, the latest entry into this is happening. It's politically, it's an interesting squeeze the Liberals find themselves in, in that two of their biggest power bases, they've got people upset with their handling of the immigration system. What do you make of this move by Francois Legault? I'm kind of having a deja vu, because I once upon a time worked for the Minister of Border Security, and we were dealing with these issues that that office was set up in many ways because uh, there were serious challenges at Roxham Road. So we dealt with that. Uh, we had to uh, work with Quebec and find a solution. We, at the time, there was $250 million. I think that was 2017 and 18 is compensation. Um, so we've been down this road before. It's kind of like, you know, we solved the Roxham Road. That was the idea. And now people are landing at the airport uh, mm. making asylum claims. So it's sort of been displaced. But the problem remains the same. The problem is a worldwide problem of migration. That's number one. Number two, no one has any quick fixes because there will continue to be a migration problem. It's in the States. It's in Europe. It's all Western countries are dealing with this. And so we need to look at it from big picture and have mature, responsible conversations about it. I didn't find anything egregious in Francois Legault's letter. There have been moments where everybody has taken this sort of to the limit of a populist tone. Um, but the bottom line is there's a problem and we need to work together on solutions. When Olivia Chow and Francois Legault are making similar arguments, it's a bigger problem. And, and so we need to figure out what the solutions are. 
you know, I look back to 2009 till about 2016 when Mexicans were required to have visas to enter the country. Um, James can talk to that because uh, mm. that that was a decision that was made. There was a serious problem in those years. It was addressed for different reasons. The visas were removed. It improved relationships with Mexico, but caused other problems. So there's always a cause and effect, and then unintended consequences. Yeah, James, uh, as Jonathan pointed out, uh, nothing super egregious or accusatory there from the Premier of Quebec, and, and you've seen the responses coming back from the federal government. Uh, the Prime Minister said they'd be there to share the cost, share the burden, and, and Dominic Leblanc, the Public Safety Minister, putting out a statement outlining the hundreds of millions and billions of dollars uh, the feds have given Quebec on this. Uh, politically, though, the challenge this presents for Legault in Quebec and for the Prime Minister in his power bases of Quebec and, and Toronto. Yeah, look, you know, Premier Legault is exactly right, and, and we, I think it's important to understand the scale of the challenge that Quebec is facing. It's north of 60,000 people, which is to say basically the entire city of Drummondville, or Granby Plus, has just been dropped into the province of Quebec in one calendar year of just asylum seekers. This is above normal inflows of immigration. Mm -hmm. This is above temporary foreign workers. This is above you know other streams of uh, migration and immigration into the province of Quebec. So this is a massive challenge with no corresponding sources of revenue. And I I have to say politically, uh, I, I think you know what was just said was important. Is that you know the fact that these criticisms are coming from the province of Quebec, coming from the mayor of Toronto, a pro former NDP member of Parliament, uh, whose voices I think respected on immigration issues, certainly from the left. I think is good. In other parts of the world, you know, the, the populist voices from kind of dark places are taking over this debate and pushing it in a very unhelpful way. But I think tick-tock, tick-tock. We need to move forward on the policy of this and find ways in order to make sure that the Canadian tolerance for immigration and migration stays sound and solid. And when you start talking about the conversations we've had in this show about the pressures that are happening on on, on emergency rooms, on the dynamics of inflation, on housing, and now on asylum seekers. And so you have, people are going to start standing up and making noise and demanding action. And so far, it's been reasonable and it's been thoughtful, but it's incumbent on the government of Canada to make sure that they're working with provinces to, to ensure that we're dealing with these stresses effectively. Because if you're not, the public is going to have very short patience for this. Yeah, uh, and, Andrew, it's not just a cost-sharing discussion, right, between different levels of government. Uh, we spoke with Tim Richter uh, earlier this week on the show. He's the CEO of the Canadian Alliance to, to End Homelessness. He's also going to be speaking to the federal cabinet in Montreal next week. And he referenced the large number of asylum seekers as not just putting pressure on the shelter system, but also on low-cost housing and sort of exacerbating all of these shortages. So there's a knock-on effect uh, to these sorts of challenges that, that the governments, as James pointed out, have to find a way to, to deal with reasonably and seriously. Yeah, the refugee situation is a, a significant one, but uh, is one that Canada needs to needs to address. I mean, to James's point, we had about 140,000 uh, refugees and asylum seekers come to the country last year. Unlike the family reunification class or people who are coming here for economic uh, reasons and jobs, uh, this is a group that really has no resources available to them, and we don't get to pick and choose where they come from. Now, Canada's problem is actually relatively small when you look at the millions that have, uh, Germany's absorbed, the million that Turkey's absorbed, the million that Poland has absorbed in the mm -hmm. last year. And we uh, seem unable to, or incapable or unwilling to be able to put up the resources to support 140,000. Now, those 140,000, to James's point, are landing in really two cities. They're landing in Toronto and they're landing in Montreal and figuring out how we take the strain off of the social service systems that have really been designed for a local population is what's missing. So 
you know, we can talk about it not being jurisdictional, but it's the federal government that's the signatory to the agreements. The responsibility of a country to provide uh, access to asylum seekers and refugees is a federal one. It is unreasonable, I think, to accept that provinces that are really designed to deal with local populations are going to be able to ramp up without additional resources to meet the needs of that very specific population that is very, uh, um, frankly, hard done by. Yes, Shachi, it's kind of too early to tell, I, I think, what the, the ripple effects of all of this will be in Quebec, because uh, it's only just happened today. But in Toronto, we're seeing Liberal MPs pushing back against Olivia Chow, you know, uh, you know, for tying uh, this issue to the potential of a tax hike. Uh, there is a, a political component to this uh, that, that is uncertain here, it seems, uh, at the federal level. Well, at the federal level, this is this is the result of years, if not decades, of a lack of anticipation and sleepwalking around not only policy, but also the way, uh, really just the operationalization of it. I, I worked summers as a student customs officer in university. People claim asylum at airports. There has to be not only a situation for federal officials to, to take those in, whether it's somebody at the border or, or in a different way, and then also deal with the very long timelines involved in sorting through the merits of many of these asylum claims. Asylum seekers can be here, uh, you know, for months, years at a time, years at a time, and we, we just federal have not come up with a plan to say, okay, these folks are going to be here for a significant amount of time. What is the plan to house them? What is the plan to care for them beyond devolving things uh, down to uh, the municipal level, the provincial level, which is why you see the mayor of Toronto and the premier of Quebec pushing back at this point. I want to circle back to the conversations around what it does to the broader sense of public opinion when it comes to the issue of migration, immigration. We know from polling in the past that when people start uh, seeing the, the pictures of, of uh, asylum seekers or others on the street without adequate housing, without those situations, immediately the brain goes to that is representative of the vast majority of immigration. You then get into a much harder, flintier anti-immigration sentiment broadly uh, because what they don't see are the economic migrants who are coming job-ready, work-ready with places to live. That's invisible to them. This is what's visible and this is what has the potential to turn the needle in the wrong way against migration altogether. I'm not talking about how many is too many, but even the concept of it. Okay, uh, uh, Jonathan, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pivot a little bit here. I'm going to spring something on you, so my apologies in advance, and I'll front load it with enough. Uh, this obviously ties into the housing challenges that are out there, and there's a little drama playing out on social media in Quebec that I wanted to, to, to ask you about between Pierre Polyev, the mayor of Montreal, and the mayor of Quebec City. Uh, Pierre Polyev has called them incompetent uh, because of declining housing constructions. He, he tweeted out uh, say, saying that a massive drop-off in construction in Quebec while Trudeau's giving billions to the incompetent mayors Marchand, Bruno Marchand of Quebec City and Valérie Plante of Montreal who get in the way of construction sites. Now they are lashing back saying this is disrespectful and shows you what kind of a prime minister Mr. Polyev would be. Walk me through the politics of this. Is it good politics? For, for Pierre Polyev to be attacking the mayors of the two largest cities in Quebec um, like this? Help me understand it. There is a method to the madness, and I'm not sure I like it or respect it, um, but Pierre Polyev knows he's not going to win seats in Montreal. 
and Valerie Plant's not very popular in Montreal. Um, and so taking shots at her is cheap but easy because people outside of Montreal really don't like Valerie Plant, whether they live here or not. They just don't like her. It's a rural, urban-rural divide. It's kind of a way to ingratiate yourself in more rural parts of Quebec where Pierre Polyev does have opportunities to pick up seats. Uh, in Quebec City, um, th there's a real divide. You have a very progressive mayor in, in Bruno Marchand in Quebec City that's popular in certain segments, places where uh, the bloc or the liberals have seats, but in the parts of uh, Quebec City, and especially the suburbs where they don't like Marchand, uh, they would like a third link across uh, the St. Lawrence. Um, this is an opportunity to score some points where they're not popular. And, of course, housing is an issue. It's an issue across the country. It's certainly an issue in, in larger cities. So if you can point fingers and say this is whose fault it is, uh, there's a lack of affordable housing in Montreal, for sure. And in Quebec City, that problem is growing as well. Okay. The federal money for housing, though, runs through the provincial government in Quebec. It's different than the other jurisdictions. Just an important point there. But, James, on that, the triangulation... You know that, but the people that Pierre Polyev is talking to don't necessarily make that distinction. And so to make the point, right. it, it still scores the points. Right. So, so, James, on that, the triangulation that Jonathan played out, right, go after this person to grow here. Uh, good politics, but is it the right way uh, for a prime minister in waiting to, to, to do this? I mean, is there a potential risk of backlash here on this one? I mean, I don't know. What I what I can say about Pierre in the in the years that I've known him is that he's a measure twice, measure three times, cut once, deliberative person who does proper consultation before he makes a move. This stuff isn't haphazard. It's not temperamental. It's thoughtful. Mm -hmm. And you know, I, I think there is certainly a constituency within the province of Quebec, and I think this exists elsewhere. But I think it is an acute one in the province of Quebec, who are a bit fed up with elite accommodation, le clique du plateau, uh, and sort of progressive voices. If, if you if you know there's a group of people who will never vote for you. And there's a group of people who feel left out because there's a consensus opinion accommodation uh, conversation going on and people are feeling left out. Then there's an audience of there. By the way, that's healthy populism. It gets stigmatized from time to time, but people on the left do it, people on the right do it. But when people, there's a group of people who feel left out, who are energized to get involved and who are fed up. Having people in political office say, I can be a solution to your problems, let me appeal to you in my way, um, that's how democracy is supposed to work. And it may not be, you know, the, uh, the, the flavor of ice cream that everybody wants, but I think it's a, it's a flavor of ice cream that should be in the marketplace and let voters decide what they want. And I think Pierre is, is offering something different from sort of status quo consensus opinion that exists amongst urban elites, uh, not only in Quebec, but elsewhere in the country. I think that's, and I think it's a healthy thing. Okay, uh, that's a good point to end it on. I want to thank the Power Panel for joining me tonight. Jonathan Kalis, James Moore, Andrew Thompson, and Shacha Curl. Thanks so much, gang. Thanks, David. Thanks. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.